everybody. You know, in 2006, there was a movie that came out. And the movie shent, sent sorry, shockwaves through my inner being. It was violent. It dealt with existential questions, theological questions even. Like, what is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? It made me laugh. It might have made some of us cry. Anybody have an idea of what movie I might be talking about? It's Nacho Libre. You haven't seen it. Oh, you saw it? Oh, perfect. Nacho is the story of a man who is trying to understand who he is, his callings, his giftings, his purpose in life. You see, Nacho grows up in a monastery in Oaxaca, Mexico, as an orphan. And everyone in the monastery has a job, has a duty. And Nacho's duty is to cook breakfast for all the orphans, all the priests in the monastery. He has kitchen duty. But Nacho does not like his duty. He's not good at it. He hates doing it. And everyone hates his food. So he desperately wants another duty. And so they say, hey, there's a dead guy. He's dying in town. Go, tend to him. And so he is assigned dead guy duty. And it turns out Nacho is not very good at dead guy duty either. And in the scene of the movie that really gets it going, Nacho is confronted by one of the brothers at the monastery. As Nacho is serving him food, the brother looks at him and says, you are horrible at making the meals every day. And yet your only job is to cook. And to which Nacho responds, okay, maybe I am not meant for these duties. Cooking duty, dead guy duty. Maybe it is time for me to go get a better duty. And the rest of the movie is Nacho trying to figure out what duty suits him best. And he goes, he finds it only for the building up of the body. That's a true story. And as ridiculous as a jump as that may seem, what is going on in Nacho's heart and in his frame of mind is not too far off from what Paul was trying to address in the Corinthians in our text today. You see, we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians, if you've been with us. And just to quickly recap what we have seen in the Corinthian church. In chapters 1 through 4, the Corinthians had divided themselves based on their affinity for a particular teacher and teaching. So there were some people in the church who were saying, we follow Paul and his teachings. And then there was a group over here who says, well, we follow Apollo and his teachings. And then another group who says, well, we follow Peter because obviously he's the best. And so Paul has to write to them and correct and reorient their thinking and remind them, we're actually all here to follow this guy named Christ and his teachings. Then in chapters 5 through 7, we find that the Corinthians had drawn lines on sexual, sexual ethics. That they, some of them were allowing permissible, some sexual permissible behavior in the church while others were saying, what, what is going on there? We should not be allowing that. Chapters 8 to 10, there was a division on the different thoughts pertaining to food offered in temples. And if you were here last week, probably the most loud and egregious division of them all, there were lines drawn around the Lord's Supper, around the table of grace. 
an opportunity for the church to celebrate her, reun her union with Christ and to one another. But there were lines divided amongst the rich and the poor with the best food and wine and drink reserved for the rich. While the poor had no idea what was going on, isolated and hungry. If there is a characteristic that we could use to describe the church in Corinth, we could easily say this, it was a divisive church. It was a fractured church. And in the, the context of the verses that we read today, Paul again is writing to correct the Corinthians. He's again addressing this division that was happening, and this particular division was happening in their worship gatherings. You see, during their worship, there were a group of people with certain talents, certain giftings, certain dispositions, and they were being magnified and glorified and honored. They were put on stage because they had these loud and bold and powerful giftings. Because they were loud, it, it naturally seemed like they had more to give. But then over here in the corner, pushed to the margins and isolated, were the people with the gifts that were not so appealing, not as loud, more behind the scenes, if you will. And they were isolated. And as you might have picked up on, Paul uses a metaphor. He uses the metaphor of the human body to compare the church, to address what is happening in the church. Take a look at verse 12 with me. It reads this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. In verse 12, Paul highlights two key themes, unity and diversity. The unity of the body. There's one body, there's one church, but it's also diverse. It's filled with many different parts. Within the one body, there are many different personalities, many different dispositions, many different members. You see, in the scriptures, there are many different metaphors that the scripture uses to describe the church. For example, the church as a flock, you and I as sheep, with Christ being the great shepherd who protects and guides. There's also the metaphor of the church as branches that grow out of the vine, the branches that are attached to and abiding in the vine, in the presence of Christ. The church as the bride, cherished, nourished by our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, Paul uses the metaphor of the human body to highlight that the church, though we are composed of many different members, different pains, different struggles, different strengths, different joys, different suffering, different dispositions, though we have a rainbow of members, we are all united. There is just the one body. And using the metaphor of the human body as a framework, here are three truths that I think we can draw out from what Paul is trying to address to the church back then and to us now. The first truth is this, the divisive disease of pride. The divisive disease of pride. Take a look at verses 14 through 21 with me. I'll kind of skip around, so just FYI. For, sorry. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, 
Where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. If we can go back to last week, because just the imagery of the table is so strong. If we can try to illustrate and just imagine in our minds what Paul is trying to show us here. The Corinthians are seated at the table together. They're one body, they're one family, and yet there are many seats because there are many members. And one by one, the members, as they start to sit down, they look around and they start to compare. And they start to murmur, hey, I'm a hand. That person over there, she's just an eye. Why does she have that seat? She has a better seat than me. She's closer to the filet mignon. Why am I here in front of the Brussels sprouts? I should be there. Because I'm obviously more important. Or the head goes by the foot. And he says to the foot, hey, can we switch seats? Because the seat that you're sitting in, that seat is reserved for those who are on the stage. That seat is reserved for those with a more prominent and central role. I mean, yeah, we're at the same table, but like, I have so much more to offer than you. And so I should be able to sit there. Some of you might be familiar with the story that I'm about to share. Years ago, I used to help out at the Brea Junior High, working with a classroom of students with special needs. And there was, uh, it was a classroom of about 12 students, and about half of them officially diagnosed with being on the spectrum. And they were all ranging in ability, some needing more help, some needing less help. Nevertheless, they were all in that class for a reason. And this class, our class would be dismissed to go to the cafeteria for lunch a little earlier than the other classes. And so every day we would walk as a class together to go to the cafeteria for lunch. But after a couple of days, I started noticing that one of the students, we would just, while we, the rest of the class would be walking this way, one of the students would walk this way. She would deviate from our group and start taking a different route, a longer route to the cafeteria. And so I asked her, what are you doing? It takes longer for you to get to cafeteria if you go that way. Why aren't you walking with us? To which she answered in a way that only a junior high girl could. I don't want to be seen with them. I'm like, who? Them. They're different. They're embarrassing. I don't want my friends to see me with them. They're weird. I said, but you're in that class too. Said, but I don't belong in that class. That class is for people like them. I'm smarter than them. All the while, in the same class. Then there are others who are at the table in the Church of Corinth. The feet who looks at the ear with envy. The feet has no heart, so I say envy in his toes. Every single toe, all ten of them, just filled with envy. And he says, oh, wow. Look at that ear. 
I wish I could be like the year. I wish I could do what the year does. Why am I this way? Why do I only do this? Why do I feel like such a failure? And whether they're filled with jealousy, envy, after comparing with the other members at the table, or they are on the other side of the spectrum, after comparing, they're not filled with envy and jealousy, but they're filled with feelings of better than, greater than, more important than, more better looking -er than. The Corinthians started to build up walls of hostility. Walls built up to divide the united body, now fractured and divided, infected by the divisive disease of pride. So maybe you're thinking, John, what, what are you talking about? Divided by pride? How is that pride? I mean, sure, I get it. I guess it's pride if you're looking down on others because you think you're better, because you think you're superior. I understand how we can talk about pride being divisive if I'm walking around thinking I have so much more to give than that guy or that girl. I guess it's pride if I'm walking around and thinking, man, I am so much more faithful than that person. I show up more often than that person, or if our family is more put together than that person's family. But how is it pride when I am looking at what I got? I walk into the room and I feel like I don't belong with anybody in the room because I look so different. How is it pride when I am struggling with feeling like a failure? That I, when I walk into that sanctuary, I feel less than. Because compared to what that person is doing and what that person is contributing, I am doing nothing. What I have to give is so little. How is it pride when I compare what my family looks like to what their family looks like? When I compare what my job or what my house looks like to what their job or what their house looks like? And after comparing, I feel less than because I don't have that. And so I feel like I don't belong. How is that pride? Not pride. Friends, whether you are the one who boasts in being better than, who boasts in being smarter than, who boasts in being more accomplished than compared to others in the body, or you are the one who is upset, wounded, and filled with envy, envy, because when you look around the table and after comparing, you feel like you just don't quite have it, it makes you question like maybe you're not doing something right because you don't measure up to that other person because I suggest to you that at the heart of all of these people, at the heart of someone who is proud, you will find a comparing heart. That pride is in the business of comparing. That those who are proud are constantly comparing. So if you're comparing, you are proud. C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it like this, really famous, quote, the proud gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. When you are proud, you compare. You are in competition. You compare with another person, and there are only two possible outcomes when you compare. If you believe you come out on top, you feel more better than, you feel superior to, you feel greater than, 
then you are puffed up with more pride. But when you compare and you feel like you come out on the bottom, like you are less than, well, then you are filled with envy. And envy is a symptom of the wounded, proud person. One commentator puts it this way, in my wretched experience, pride has always been envy's father. Pride is in the business of comparing. And when you and I find ourselves comparing with one another, we are competing with one another. And consequently, when we compare and compete with one another, we build up walls of hostility to divide us. And thus, we can never truly be united. We can never truly live in unity. How then can we become a body formed in unity, like Paul exhorts us to? How can we be a body comprised of many different members, different moving parts, different personalities, different agendas? How can we all gather together and yet still proclaim that we are united? How does this work? Well, take a look at verse 13 with me. It reads this, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Just briefly, if I can go phrase by phrase, for in one spirit we were all baptized. We were all, all believers, all parts, all members, the eye, the foot, the head, the hand, the rich, the poor, the one on stage, the one in the back, the weak, the strong, not just the one with this particular talent or on this particular stage, all of us. None of us are exempt. And notice that it says we were. It's in the past tense. It is looking back to a moment in the past when you and I, all of us, were born again. Baptized with the Holy Spirit, a one-time act. To be baptized, you see, means to immerse oneself in, to identify with. And thus, when we are baptized with the Spirit, we are professing to turn away from the way of the world and the culture of the world and the ideologies of the world, and we are reorienting ourselves to the teaching and the way of Jesus. We are immersing ourselves in Christ, identifying ourselves with Christ, not just rubbing shoulders with Christ, not just acquaintances with Christ, but we are firmly immersed in Christ, his teaching and his life placed all the way in. Paul continues, Jews or Greeks, what he's saying is it doesn't matter about your religious past, whether you were attending church for years and years and years, or you have just recently started to come. It doesn't matter about your prior moral background, about your moral compass, your ethics, your principles prior to Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or free. What Paul is saying is it doesn't matter about your socioeconomic standing, what tax bracket you, you qualify in. There is not a separate body for the wealthy and the in crowd and another body for the poor, the isolated, and the outcast. There is just the one, one body that we all belong to. We all, every believer, made to drink, Paul writes, of one spirit really appreciate the use of the passive voice there. We were made to drink. Who is in control? Who brings the cup? Who extends the hand? Who takes initiative? Not you. Not me. Not us. It is God who does all the acting. There is only one source of salvation, and everyone of us must come to him 
to drink? How then is the body of Christ formed? In the light of the dividing work of pride, the comparing, the competing with one another between all of us in this room, the dividing wall of hostility that is built up between us, even in the midst of that, how can we be united? How can we be a united body of Christ? How is it formed? Well, Paul writes it in this way in his letter to another church, the church in Ephesus. If you guys can take a look at the screen, it says, it's in Ephesians 2.14. Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Let me read that for us one more time. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both distinct from one another. He has made us one because he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus himself tears down the wall of hostility. How? Well, he starts off by pointing out to every one of us in this room. He starts off by reminding us of who we really are. That every single one of us in this space, we're sinners. We have sinned. The scriptures say that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. That's what you and I have in common. And not just that. As sinners, we are in desperate need. Again, we have that all in common. We are in desperate need of a Savior. We come as those who are begging who are in need tremendously, whether you recognize it or not. All of us, we don't have the means to pay for the price of our disobedience to the king of the universe. That's what we have in common. You know what else we have in common? That we have all received the salvation. We have all received salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ. That while you and I could not pay the price of our sins, our Lord Jesus Christ paid the price of death that you and I could not afford to pay. He has saved us by grace. It is, nothing that none, it is something that none of us could have earned for ourselves. It's nothing that we can brag about because it's not based on any merit of ours. And if we can't brag about it, then there is nothing that we can take to compare ourselves to when we come into this place because the one thing that we all have in common is that we are sinners saved by the loving, warm, kind, gracious hand of God. The body of Christ formed in unity, not by anything that you did or what I did or that we are currently doing or that we will do in the future. All of us here united as one, members in the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. What divides us? The divisive disease of pride that infects us and skews our vision to see those at the table, the same table that we sit together with, to see them as adversaries, as competition. But what unites us? All of us fallen short of the glory of God, and yet all of us have been tasted and seen the grace and mercy from God the Father in sending his Son to save us. How then can we move forward? How then can we live out the unity that God intended for us as one body composed of many different members? Well, the way forward 
is the way of Jesus. Take a look at verse 12 again with me. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Why does Paul say, so it is with Christ? Again, this entire metaphor, it's for the church. One body, many members, the church. Should it not say, so it is with the church? Or so it is with the people of God? But that's not what Paul says. He says, many parts, one body, many members, one body, so it is with Christ. What Paul is doing here in this verse is that this verse gives us insight into and gives us the comfort of God's deep, deep intention for unity in the body of Christ, his church. And it is this, that the church is personal to Christ. You are personal to Christ. I'm personal to Christ. We are personal to Christ. That when we profess to be a part of this body, when we come and we are placed in this body, we are not joined to a club. We're not joined to some kind of social movement, but we're joined to a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. There's a famous pastor. His name is R.G. Lee. He preached a sermon called Payday Someday. You can find it online. Much better than my sermon. Payday Someday. First day, first time, he, he, he describes the first time that he went to the Holy Land. And he took some of his church members there with him. And he was accompanied by a tour guide. And the tour guide took them to Calvary. And the tour guide asked the people in the group, how many of you have been here before? Which Pastor Lee raised his hand. And the tour guide said, I thought you said you've never been here before. And Lee responded, well, not in this lifetime. But I was there 2,000 years ago. When Jesus died, I died with him. When he was buried, I was buried with him. And when he rose from the dead, I rose with him. And when he ascended into the right hand of the Father, I ascended with him. And when he sat on the throne, I sat with him. I was like, man, that, I would hate to be that tour guy. You see, that's what it means to be fully identified with Christ. What is true of Christ, what was true of Christ, is true of us. The way that he walked, the things that he did, what was true of his life then is true of our lives now. Friends, what did Jesus do? Very simply, Jesus loved me at my worst. Jesus loved you at your worst. To bring out my best. To bring out your very best. Let me say that again. Jesus loved me at my worst to bring out my best. Jesus loved you at your worst to bring out your very best. He loved us while we were still far away so that he could draw us closer and give us a seat at the table of grace. And if that's what Christ does, with the power of the indwelling spirit, that's what you and I dedicate our lives to as well. We dedicate our lives to loving people at their very worst so that we can bring out their very best. Paul tells us in this text that Jesus himself bestowed honor to those who were the least worthy of honor. 
That was the work of Christ. In Philippians 2, it gives us insight into the mind of Christ. Very famous passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Though he sat at the right hand of God, Christ lowered himself. He gave up the prime seat at the table. He rid himself of all of his glory and all of his honor. Why? To clothe you and I with all of his glory and all of his honor. He gave up his seat so that you and I could sit there. He lost so that you and I might win. That's the mind of Christ. And I love that detail from Paul here. He says, this is the mind of Christ. But it's also yours in Christ Jesus. Which means that you and I have the privilege. Now we get the privilege to do what our Father does. I have the privilege of luring myself to help you win. I have the privilege to love you at your very worst so that I could bring out your very best. We get the privilege to bestow honor to one another, to serve one another, to love one another. Because Paul writes, because when you win, I win. And when I win, you win. Isn't that wonderful? Friends, this is the way of Jesus. And it is contrary to the way of the world, the way of the flesh. The way of the world that is compelled by pride on the platform of comparing and competing with one another to build up walls of hostility amongst one another to inflame the perception that we are in competition. Competition that seeks to take advantage of. And if you don't take advantage of that person, then you will be taken advantage of. That's the way of the world. But with the way of our Lord Jesus Christ, he comes in peace. To tear down the walls of hostility reminds us that we are united in him. And the commonality that we all share is that while we were far away sinners, he still reaches out to us to love us, draws closer to him, gives up his seat at the table so that you and I might sit. Despite our wickedness, despite our disobedience, despite the fact that we come with nothing in our hands to give to him. And so as we follow in his footsteps, as people united united in him and to one another, We seek to love one another and to view one another not as competition, but as opportunities. Also opportunities where we can spend our lives on what is most important. And that is to give honor to one another. To bring out the best in one another. To love one another. To spend our lives with whatever we have, with whatever disposition, whatever talent, whatever it is, we spend our lives using it to bring out the best in others, to bring about the glory of one another, for the glory of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray and close our time together today.
Lord, we thank you for this time. And we thank you for your word. And God, it is easy for us to, to read the scripture, to listen to the scripture, and to think of it as a them problem, a problem that is for them, a problem that affected them. But God, would you help us to see that that's not what the scriptures show us, that this is a human problem, that God, that it is something that infects every single one of us in this room, that we seek, God, to build up walls of division amongst ourselves, but all under the name, all under the guise of wanting to figure out what we are truly worth, how much we are truly valued. But God, when we come into your presence, would you really help us to remember that our value is not in what we have or what we don't have compared to the other people at the table. But God, our value is in the truth. That God, that you sent your only son to die for us because you love us. And that that is far better than anything that the world has to offer. But would you help us to really grasp onto that uh, with our hearts, with our minds, and with our bodies this week. We love you so much. We pray all this in your son's wonderful name. Amen.